This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, and punching people you disagree with in the face over and over again verbally. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Christopher Nolan. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Stephen Caradini, and yes, this was quite the philosophical boxing match. It was... It was just jabs and hooks and uppercuts the entire time. Goodness. We're back talking about evolution as a religion by Mary Midgley. And we're going to talk about all of the things that we had questions about. (laughs) I I wrote a lot of question marks in this book. I actually didn't use a pencil for this book because after the first (laughs) chapter, I was like, I... Not interested in trying to parse these arguments because some of the arguments, dear listener, are really specific to late 70s and early 80s arguments about sociobiology to the point that I read them and I was like, I don't understand that argument. I'm going to ignore that I don't understand it and move on, which is the only book. don't seem to be especially current. Yeah, it's the only book in this entire year so far that I've looked at a paragraph and been like, that one was not important to my life. Even the Kurzweil? I mean, I had some angry thoughts about Kurzweil <laughs> because he was so wrong and I needed to talk about that. But in this one, I was like, that one just can go by the wayside and it makes no difference. Yep. So the big thing here to me, I know that you have disagreements, is that one, her notion of a religion is bizarre. Yeah. Which, as we posited in the first episode, it's simply because she's trying to make an argument. She doesn't actually care about religion in any specific way. Right. She's not hostile towards moderate to liberal versions of religion. Right. But she's not a fan of it either. No. And if they make any strong claims, she is not here for that. She, well, she, she looks at you like, you see how I'm throwing punches this way? I could throw them your way, too. Well, she does do that. But there are also some claims. She is aware that theologians can dispute with her because she, in several points, mentions, and smart theologians know this. Right. Which is sort of a line not to tell the theologians that she knows, but that she can tell the theologians that she's aware of what they would say. Right. Which, I don't know if that's accurate if she thinks she thinks she knows what she's doing but she is not trying to pick fights directly with religion except for creationism right but the point is to use religion as sort of this low bar to get over and that's not fun right the critical thing for her about science and religion She quotes in my copy, page 15, Theodosius Dobzhansky, who is her very favorite, as we mentioned last time. Indeed. Anytime you see him show up in in this book, you should think, okay, this is where she's really happy. She has an intellectual (laughs) crush on Dobzhansky. She's really into Dobzhansky's thought, that's for sure. Yeah. But she cites him here as saying, science and religion deal with different aspects of existence. If one dares to over-schematize for the sake of clarity, one may say that these are the aspect of fact and the aspect of meaning, end quote. That is, science deals with fact and religion deals with meaning. Now, I, the, I, uh, 
Yeah. I'm intentionally exaggerating the extent to which I'm kind of flummoxed by this, but no, religions make claims about facts. Many of them hang or fall quite entirely on matters of facts. And so to Stephen's point, we differ with her on this. Right. Now that said, despite differing with her on that, we agree with a lot of things she wants to say about how scientists overstate what empirical analysis can do. Right. And we agree with her that a lot of times scientists, especially in the field she critiques here in sociobiology, in response to Dawkins, the selfish gene and other things that have been advanced by atheistic scientists over really the last century and a half, but perhaps especially the last century, devolve into a kind of scientism. It does act as a religious force for them. And they do want to make claims about how we can moralize, how we can derive what the good is from what the world looks like. And right. It functions epistemologically for them, and it functions ethologically, as she often puts it, that is, ethically, in the same ways that religions tend to work for people. And they clearly want it to do so. They want yeah. science to act and serve in those ways for society as a whole. And we agree with her. It doesn't work. Yeah, and, and she very clearly points out that this ends up becoming circular and almost tautological in mm -hmm. the end, that it puts science on top because science is on top. Mm -hmm. She blames Descartes for this, which is kind of true, but it's more about how people use Descartes afterwards. But it's also one of those things where like Descartes did not say those things. <laughs> he just said other things as well that right. are supposed to go along with it, mostly about God, mostly that you can't have rationalism without God. Right. People forget that part. So it's one of those things where you have this long chain of arguments, which she shows clearly. She shows how the argument ends up in this place that the originators didn't want it to or would even disagree with in some ways. And so right. there is an aspect here where, yes, this science cannot function as a salvific eschatological space, right? specifically because we disagree with the golden escalator right. sort of argument, right. which is literally an attempt to replace the deity with a Superman, mm -hmm. which is Nietzsche's project. She does make a point that one of his main problems was that because of the nature of Nietzsche's project, which is obviously outside the scope of this podcast, when he, the question is asked, why should we or should not we do this, instead of the answer being because we always have or because tradition tells us to, right. Nietzsche's argument was because the future calls for it. Right. And so this flips at a very terminological, practical, specific, whatever way you want to put it. This is the crux upon which liberalism versus conservatism in its modern contemporary form is built. And so to that end, she's also not wrong about Nietzsche. That's a thing. And mm -hmm. that has caused a lot of trouble, not even just in this space, but in other spaces. Right. One of the things that's interesting about this is that she was not wrong that this is how science is uptaken in certain circles and that it has continued. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I recently came across was that she mentions, I think once, Daniel Dennett in this book, who is a friend of Richard Dawkins. Uh, Dennett is more of an actual philosopher than Dawkins. Much more. 
And so she mentions Dennett, and Dennett was a friend of Douglas Hofstadter, who mm. is the author of Godel Escher Bach, which is essentially a materialist, religionist manifesto. Mm-hmm. He says so himself. And so that book won the Pulitzer Prize, Godel Escher Bach did, in the early 80s. So this is a thing that she's recognizing as this smuggled philosophy, and she thinks it's wrong. Right. And unfortunately, Midgley's work has not gotten as much response as we would hope. Unlike the last book that we read when I went to go find analysis about it, there are plenty of people that think this book is terrible. And so she tried to call some people out, and some people called her right back out. They were still wrong, but they were louder. They They were louder. And I think... There's an interesting discussion here about the way that argument works that is, I think, quite appropriate and important in our current context, culturally, politically, etc. Because I mentioned last time that I would describe this book as a persistent bludgeoning of those with whom she disagrees. And she's not wrong to be angry. In many cases, I mean, when she quotes, I mentioned this last time, Giselin as saying, here, I'm just going to read the same quote that she refers back to. Where it is in his interest, every organism may reasonably expected to aid his fellows. Where he has no alternative, he submits to the yoke of communal servitude. Yet, given a full chance to act in his own interest, nothing but expediency will restrain him from brutalizing, from maiming, from murdering. His brother, his mate, his parent, or his child. Scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. This is what she's responding to. So... She has some reason to be angry. That is about as vile a characterization of humanity as one will find. Like, a a characterization of humanity as vile, specifically. Well, so here's here's the trick, is that that's, in a lot of ways, drawn off observations of animals in dire circumstances. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. those observations in those limited contextual circumstances are true. Like there are a lot of organized animals. I mean, there's obviously a bunch of different types of animals that don't form (laughs) cohesive social units, but there are animals in cohesive social units that when the chips are down, will the unity of the the social organization will break down into violence. That's a thing. But Mm -hmm. that does not mean that just because in this contention, humans are built out of the same evolutionary genes that all of that immediately transfers over to humans. It's a right. wholesale copy. It's a copy and paste job, really. And it's not right. supported by the right. whole fact of what sociobiology is supposed to be about, <laughs> which is how did humans end up being humans? How did they get to right. be so socially organized and cooperative as far as they are in right. and over those other animals that can't do right. it. And the argument and might be something like, maybe humans don't operate those same ways. <laughs> <laughs> right. She spends a good couple chapters saying, could, could it maybe possibly be that? <laughs> do you think? So to be clear, she has a reason yeah. to be angry with yeah. some of these things. Yeah. But the net of it is that the structure of this book is... Unrelenting. It's 
unrelenting bludgeoning. It's 16 chapters before she actually makes a, a genuinely positive set of claims. She she starts to make a couple sets of positive claims around chapters 13 yeah. and 14, yeah. but it's really only chapters 17 and 18. And I alluded to this last time. I would have loved to read a book that were argued the way those last two chapters were argued. But I think part of the reason that this might not have been received is because she just comes out swinging the bat and she doesn't stop. And so there's not a place for someone. It's very difficult, not impossible, but it's very difficult when someone just comes at you swinging to say, hmm, you know, maybe you're right. This person has a point. Maybe I should stop. Maybe I am a terrible person. That's right. The <laughs> fallen, broken human instinct is to swing back. And if there are more of you and you're louder, a lot of times swinging back means you win. And that broadly culturally in the sciences is kind of what seems to have happened. And there are a lot of complicated reasons for that in terms of the specific position of philosophy of science relative to working scientists and how they relate to each other, which I'll summarize by saying good working scientists are aware of and attentive to the philosophy of science. A great many working scientists are not good working scientists under the way I just described yeah. it. Yeah. And many of the loudest popularizers to whom, as we note, she's responding here. People like Richard Dawkins have repeatedly demonstrated themselves to be variously ignorant of and contemptuous of philosophy and philosophy of science in the arguments they're with or or willfully ignoring them like yeah, it's that, yeah. it's not like like richard dawkins doesn't know this exists he does yeah and he just doesn't care. he doesn't think it matters yeah yeah that's what i meant by contemptuous of it oh, he doesn't well, think it okay so to me contemptuous means you spend 160 pages arguing against it and uh, Richard Dawkins just like doesn't bother. He's like, it's not worth my time. So that's not to me contempt. <laughs> yes, I that's think like, are, that's you know, <laughs> something different right. and maybe worse. I, I would describe them as both as being forms of contempt, but I totally get what you mean. Yeah, they're <laughs> they're different kinds of yeah. contempt at minimum. Yeah. And so I, I do think that a different argument, a different way of making the argument might have had some chance of landing differently. It may. It's very difficult to persuade with bludgeoning. Yeah, and I, that's one of the things that's hardest about this book is that, like, I wasn't really, as I mentioned in the first episode, as thrilled by the sociobiology section because, you know, I'm not a philosopher of science. When we got to the Hume section, I was like, this is an emotionally satisfying <laughs> beatdown. I can recognize yep. why this would be fun to write and fun to read if you already agree. But, like, it's not going to convince right. anybody. And honestly, no. the structure of how 17 and 18 are written really aren't set up to argue either. They're set up to, like, they're sketch. They're not persuasive, no. Yeah, they're not yeah. really giving qualified, grounded arguments they're sort of right. sketching out the alternate of what would happen if you didn't believe any of that bogus that i just right discussed right. which is fine and even if it were just 50 50 this would have been a way stronger book but because the alternative is offered only at that level of sketch mm. and the bludgeoning goes on so long now the sketch is interesting because it's very as chris mentioned it's a pretty strict shift like it is it, it spins on a dime and says, okay, well, let's talk about how evolution would actually work. And evolution connects the, the actual place and the things in the place. Like Darwin is actually talking about how 
the flora and fauna of a place adapt to the conditions of the place. And so to her, by twisting Darwin out of his actual argument and into this other argument, she argues that we lose the whole point of what Darwin was trying to say, which is that there are conditions that you can't avoid and you have to respond to them. And the way that he was talking about the response to them was through these patterns of, of change and these patterns of how adapting to uh, the conditions around resulted in uh, genetic mutations being uptaken instead of dying out and things of that nature. And so she argues, look, if we don't respond to the conditions that are around us, then we are going to die out and be a mutation that fails because we are not taking care of any of the things we need to take care of on the earth. We are totally derelict of duty. Right. That's the shift. I think she's right to make this move, though I don't think she has great grounds for making it, to be honest, and that's part of the problem here. But she wants to be very clear, uh, again, as we noted at the end of the last episode, that it is possible for you to have claims and duties upon you from things like the natural world. Yeah. And, And those claims and duties don't have to come down to what Kant would have them. For example, she also she wants you to know that Kant's notion of persons and things is rather too sharp a delineation between kinds of things that can and can't have claims on you, which is because, again, something that would need a lot more pages to talk a about a lot more like, pages. Yeah. I'm not a huge Kant guy, but at the same time, I was like, whoa, that's a that's a big unsubstantiated leap. <laughs> that's a big set of that's claims. And lot. you gave it three pages. Yeah. And, and I think part of the challenge for her here, she, she's very happy to use words like wicked throughout this book. One of her previous books was literally called Wickedness, a Philosophical Essay. Right. And I, I would kind of be curious to go look at some of those because it's not clear to me in reading this on what grounds she wants to understand goodness and wickedness as it were on oh that's on to what me grounds? it's pretty obvious she's talking about cooperation and non-cooperation that's but, right i'm i'm talking at the at the more fundamental level why should we consider that good oh the romans and spartans well she's saying be... we should consider that good because that's how we evolved to get here like that's what she's saying about sociobiology is that like y'all have the answer in your name and you can't even do it right let me do it for you that's why it's not substantiated from philosophy is because she thinks it doesn't work this way but she thinks that because she's just trashed the whole basis of sociobiology that she can then go back and be like here's what y'all were supposed to be doing it's literally right, right. there in your name come on man so that's why well, part it's of not the key is she wants to have it both ways and that's that's kind of what i'm gesturing at she wants to say like i, I agree with you that that's what she thinks works. that's the move she's making well, what i'm saying is that that doesn't actually hold water very well because she simultaneously wants to say look guys you can't say that because these things happen in the world this is how it ought to be we should do opposite that sometimes also i'm going to say that this is how things are in the world therefore that's how it ought to be like well so i would i would say it's slightly different because i mean again i'm arguing for some that i disagree with here but like this is what my reading of it was is that her argument is not that sociobiology is a sham but that it's been turned to the wrong ends particularly because the extrapolation 
of the sociobiological evidence that is available does not support the Superman or Red in Claw sort of readings. And that's the argument that she's making. And she says, the evidence that we have supports cooperation. That's the whole point of like the, the 15 and 16 chapters where she was making this turn towards cooperation versus Red and Claw. And so she's saying the appropriate read of this evidence is cooperation. And therefore, she jumps from the evidence to what ought to be. Now, you can still say that that's still not good enough, but that's, I think, the reasoning she's doing here. That's what she wants to do. But then she starts talking about claims and rights and duties in terms responding to Kant, etc. And there's just no way you can talk about claims and rights and duties on the basis of sociobiology for all the reasons she has correctly elucidated in the rest of the book around the is-ought relationship. And all of that. Yeah, I mean she's 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 aware of that but she can't get out of Which that. Which is right. That's why I'm saying I would want to hear her like I would be much more interested to read her try to actually make those claims. And I think it would be a much more interesting and I'd still disagree with yeah. her. But I think there's a much more interesting set of things to disagree with there. Yeah. versus the level of sketch that she gets to at the end that just can't quite can't at all hang on the kinds of moves she's yeah. made so far in the rest of the book. Yeah, I mean, she points out, like, the the first subtitle of Chapter 18 is, is meanness always rational? Like, it sort of tells mm-hmm. you what it's trying mm-hmm. to do. No. Right. I grant that, that from a outsider's perspective, from a philosophical perspective, the move she's trying to make is the same sort of move that she just elucidated as incorrect within social biology but from within side social biology she's just trying to make a different type of move from the same evidence and she's trying to argue to social biologists specifically and effectively that they should look at social biology in this other way and fall in line with the rest of scientists and do environmentalist things so i grant your argument that philosophically she's committing some errors here in terms of right. the overarching is ought problem. But in the context of this book, she's just trying to like move their attention from here to there. I I think in some sense, that's what she thinks she wants to do, but she also wants to pull in Rawls and Kant and I make these. I got nothing on the Rawls <laughs> thing. Like when Rawls came up, I was like, I hate Rawls and I don't know why he's here. <laughs> and, Hume and Grotius and well, like Hume, Hume is an obvious one. To, Hume, you can't really argue is, but about the way she wants to connect it to those here is just one of those things that I look at and I say, look, I get what you're trying to do, but you, you didn't That's actually fair. do That's it. Fair. And I wanted you to, I was still disagreed with you about certain things, but it would have been so much more interesting and compelling and yeah. frankly might've moved the needle. And I would have liked you to move the needle. Well, actually We'd be no. having somewhat less dumb arguments. I don't think any, I don't think more philosophy would have moved the needle as, insofar as the philosophy that was already there was crushing the needle. Like <laughs> you may be correct in that. You, you may well. So, and again, I'm not arguing that, like, she's obviously falling to the is-ought problem. Like, that's... Right. I'm not arguing that. (laughs) But, like, what she's trying to do versus what I think you're saying she's trying to do, I read it as being a little bit different. That's fair. Dear listeners, it turns out two people can read the same text and and take it slightly different ways. Yeah. Like we've said, all season. Yep. Yep. I have to say, this was neither my most hated nor my most favorite book. It was on the lower side of your your list. Yeah, though. yeah. 
I would not put it in the, yeah, you should go read this. Like there've been other books that we've read that I thought, you know, I disagreed with this, but it was interesting and I profited from reading it. I don't really feel like I came out of this having learned. And that's a real disappointment. I came out of it thinking, yeah, I already agreed with you about all your attacks on these people. I learned a couple names of other people who argued about this in the seventies <laughs> that I don't care about. Jacques Monod. Right. I just don't feel profited by this book, even in the ways that we, you heard listeners, we disagreed with Franklin a lot, but Franklin was a good read. And I think a good interlocutor and you should go yeah, read yeah, it. I told people that they could read it. This one is really specialized and not even in the specialized way that Dark Matters is specialized. Right. Which at least has connections to the larger life of the world that you can draw out regardless of whether you know the fields in question. Yeah. You kind of have yeah. to know the fields in question here in this book. You kind of have to know the background. But if you know the background, you might not need to read this book. You might not. And honestly, if you could find it at the library and read the last two chapters and skip the first 16, I'm not even joking. I think you could do that. And those are the most interesting chapters in the book. And really, even just picking up, well, you could read you, 13. Yeah, I was about to say, you could start at chapter 13 and read forward and you would yeah. get all of what happened in chapters one through 12 and the good parts. Right. Yeah. So it is... Like I said at the beginning of the first episode, it's well written in in the sense that like we understand what's happening. Unlike with Kurzweil, where we're yep. like, I'm literally not even <laughs> sure what happened in this chapter. You know, so there there is a sense here that like the prose is good, the structure of it is commendable. But there's yeah, there's just not a whole lot of general value. There's a lot of specific value in certain ways, but not a whole lot of general value. Sorry, y'all. Sorry. That's book clubs for you. Book clubs. That happens. I'll close with a thought on epistemology, since in theory, that's what we're tackling here. I mean, this whole thing has been about epistemology. We just haven't said the word. I think an interesting meta note about this book is it is an extremely heightened version of the problem I noted that you can run into with epistemology as lens on reality anger and hate work profoundly distortively on our ability to communicate because they 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 work kind of like a magnifying glass with the sun you can turn it into this really hot hot point of light that burns all it touches you can do that yeah and that might be useful for starting a fire but if you don't use that to actually start a campfire that you're going to cook some food over, just starting a fire might not be that helpful, as my lungs have reported to me lately because of the sheer number of fires across the western half of the United States right now. It can actually be really unhelpful. And unfortunately, I think the degree of anger that motivated this book made it a lot less profitable because all she could see was slam, I need to slam, slam, slam. And... There's not really a positive case to there. Be fair, really, she just needed less pages because the arguments were dumb <laughs> that she was arguing against. And the ones that I knew yeah. about, I was like, that is a fair interpretation of a dumb argument. And so, right, it is what it is. 
This is a 190 page long hot take, kids. That's what <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, if you get the 85 version, it's shorter. <laughs> I think the the thing that I took away thinking about epistemology is that one, we really have profited this year from reading a bunch of disparate books because we're now able to compare them mm-hmm. against each other. Like there's some mm-hmm. environmentalist stuff in this one, but no feminist stuff. That's an overlapping thing from Franklin. Franklin mm-hmm. and Dark Matters, Brown, have some overlapping stuff, come from different angles, but overlapping stuff. Both of them sort of are after the period of Leotard's The Postmodern Condition, but picking up some similar mm-hmm. different threads. So it's mm-hmm. it's been a profitable process to read all these different books that are vaguely about epistemology. And put them together and think about them in relation to each other. Like, we didn't even mention this, but basically, Jurassic Park came out in the late 80s around the same time and is arguing about kind of the same things about science. But way better. So there's... (laughs) Because dinosaurs, man. Because (laughs) dinosaurs. So (laughs) it, it is not wrong to say that part of Crichton's distaste for the overreach of science in terms of mm-hmm. its uh, attempts to become Superman yeah, right. or to become super dinosaur or to control nature in its entirety, which is one function of Superman specifically. Right. They're the same. Those are similar concepts that are being worked out in different ways. And so one, yep. what we've accidentally learned this season on Winning Slowly was that, man, the 80s were weird. especially the book covers wow um but two is that there really are chains of thought it's not just something that you get taught like these things do work on top of each other in various ways yeah and are next to each other even if they don't cite each other in the conversations that are going on and so that's why it matters to read broadly both historically and contemporarily is that historically we now have a much fuller picture of the 20th century, the the latter half of the 20th century, at least, in terms of the, the philosophical and epistemological thought that was going on, which will definitely right. profit future uh, series of Winning Slowly. And secondarily, it's an argument for reading broadly now because fields really do matter to each other. They really do have effects yeah. on how we yeah. interpret those fields. And we didn't even get to... to celebrate this as much as we want to because this is a show that has art as part of its remit is that there's a significant number of artistic arguments Mm -hmm. through evolution as a religion there's a long one about robinson crusoe in chapter 18 and there are several other more traditional classical references to art throughout the book it's all linked together it really is yep and so I think that's one thing that I took away, especially when the big argument of her book is couched in a really long Robinson Crusoe metaphor. Yep. She also expects that you've read Robinson Crusoe. (laughs) She's like, think about Robinson Crusoe for a moment. And you're like, oh, well, what if you haven't since you were nine? (laughs) I was going to say, I was was a child, okay? It's been 20 years. So, So even though... We didn't like it. Mary Midgley is about ethics, technology, religion, and art. <laughs> You're not wrong. I, I wish I wish her perspective on, on religion were a, a little more robust, but you're not wrong. 
that's part of dealing with talking about religion, unfortunately. Yep. She also, I will note here as well, that she does actually call out the cult of technology at several points and the ways that people want to ascend to Omega Man via technological ascension. She calls out quite oh, explicitly. Yeah, that, that section is wacky. Good wacky, but wacky. She has no time for that nonsense. She calls it perverse. <laughs> she doesn't have time for a lot of things. The song at the beginning of the episode was Sailor's Cry by AMR via Silk Music. The album that it comes from just came out, and uh, we commend it to you. Please don't use the song without permission. We used it with permission. Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show. You can do so if you like at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. That does keep the lights on here and we appreciate it. Yes, yes, yes. Also, if you do that at a sufficiently high tier, we'll invite you to a special guests only part of our discussion medium of choice twist and we would love that you can also just email us at hello at winning slowly.org or tweet at us at winning slowly or find us on facebook at winning slowly podcast unless you manage to really hit just the right note that's going to be steven replying on those but steven replies to pretty much all of it so you will get a response from us it's true it's true so next month's book as chris so aptly described last month is Contact by Carl Sagan and the attendant movie with Jodie Foster and probably someone else. But it's always billed as Jodie Foster. So we're excited about it. It'll be fiction. It'll be fun. It'll be light, maybe? Maybe not. We've never actually read it. Or watched it. As always, thanks for listening. Blondes just have more fun. That's like a fact, right? Isn't that science? That's science. <laughs>